79 tonight. Psalm 79. We've been in Psalm 78 <coughs> for the last three weeks. And I enjoyed Psalm 78. There was a lot of good stuff there. I guess that's probably the first time I've ever really spent a lot of time considering Psalm 78. But tonight we are moving on to Psalm 79. We'll probably do the whole thing tonight. It's not terribly long. Psalm 78 was very long, 72 verses, but uh, this psalm is much shorter. We are still in the Psalms of Asaph. The Psalms of Asaph run through Psalm 83, so we'll be in these Psalms for probably at least four more weeks, four more Wednesdays. This is a difficult one, and, and there's a couple of these we run across in that the content that's being discussed is content that would have occurred a long time after the Asaph that was the musician in the time of David. And so... It seems pretty clear, especially from Psalms like Psalm 79 here, this could not have been the same Asaph in David's time. This, this would have had to have been someone much later. Uh, some of these, are it's, it's suggested that perhaps a different Asaph at a later point wrote some of these. That's a possibility. Uh, perhaps this is speaking of Asaph's family. Maybe they continued to write some of these things that we see. Uh, there are several suggestions. Uh, this is attributed to Asaph, but exactly what that means, I'm not sure. Uh, it seems like it's probably, almost certainly, not the same Asaph of David's day, simply because the events that are described would have occurred much later uh, than that Asaph would have lived. And so, even though this falls in the Psalms of Asaph and is uh, superscribed as such, I don't know what that means in relation to this psalm. So with that said, uh, it doesn't really affect us reading and understanding and seeing what's going on, but uh, if you think, wait a minute, this Asaph who lived in the time of David and these events that are discussed are a long time apart, maybe that thought comes to your mind. Well, I don't have a good answer for you for why this is attributed to Asaph and in what way, but it is. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for your good word, and I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us tonight in these few minutes, that you would hide me behind the cross and clear my mind, and dear Lord, each one of our minds, that we would hear from you tonight and take something from some of your word that we read and hear. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Verse 1, God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. <coughs> desecrated your holy temple and turned Jerusalem into ruins. They gave the corpses of your servants to the birds of the sky for food, the flesh of your godly ones, the beast of the earth. They poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. Now, we see right off the bat here that Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is desecrated. Well, that's the first problem when we begin to think about the Asaph and David's day because the temple was not even built until after David was killed. Now, it's certainly possible Asaph lived after David died, but it was quite some time after that before Solomon would have completed the temple, and it was a long time after that before an event would occur 
that Jerusalem would have been destroyed and the temple would have been destroyed. Now, that occurred when the Babylonians came in and overtook Jerusalem. That was around 586 B.C. So this was a long time after David, but it seems clear that this is the event that's being described because that lines up with that event that's recorded, uh, for instance, in 2 Kings chapter 25, I believe, if you want to read more about the Babylonians coming in and that destruction. And so what we see here is a destruction of Jerusalem and a destruction of the temple. And that's the event that's being described for us. And it's a bad event because these enemies, what have they done? They have invaded your inheritance. That is, they have invaded God's people. They have invaded the land of God's people. And then it says, uh, they gave the corpses of your servants, that is, the people of God, to the birds of the sky for food, the flesh of your godly ones to the beast of the earth, they poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. So this, by all accounts, sounds like a massacre, that these enemies uh, of, of, of Israel came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed the people. Many lives were lost. This was a, this was a bad time when Jerusalem fell. And, and at this time, if you go back and study your Bible history, uh, you will see that this is when God's people went into captivity, and this was a very difficult time. That's the time frame that the book of Daniel covers. It covers the time after Jerusalem fell, and these were very difficult years. Now, sometime later, after they came out of their captivity, they would rebuild the temple. They would rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, as we have studied about in books like Nehemiah. You may remember when we studied those books. Uh, Eventually, they would be restored, but never to the level in which they were when the original temple was built. The original temple built by Solomon was a grand temple. Jerusalem was a great place at that time, but due to the bad kings that came starting, really, I guess, with Solomon and afterwards, uh, things went downhill very quickly until they got to this point where Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple uh, was destroyed and God's people uh, were killed. So this is the time that's being described in this psalm. Verse 4, We have become an object of reproach to our neighbors, a source of mockery and ridicule to those around us. Now, here are God's people that God has brought mightily out of the land of Egypt through the Red Sea. We know that because... In these Psalms of Asaph, we've, we've seen that a lot, that referencing back to the deliverance of God's people through the Red Sea and reminders of God's bringing them into the promised land and all the miraculous things that God had done and how God had delivered his, uh, his people and, and helped them to overcome the enemies that were in the land and the greatness of God and the people of God should have been revered and the God of Israel should have been uh, known by all as the most powerful God and here. God's people, powerful God of Israel, yet his people are being destroyed by the Babylonians. They are being overtaken. Now, it's not because there was a lack of God's power. It's because God allowed these enemies to come in and overtake his people because things had gotten that bad, because they were disobedient to him. And God allowed the Babylonians to come in and overtake them. And what does it say here? That they become an object of reproach to those around them, a source of of mockery and ridicule. Can you imagine what some of those might have been saying to the people of Israel, mocking them? Hey, where is your God now? 
Where's this powerful God at now? Look at you. You're no better than anybody else. And oh, what a horrible time that must have been. Not only for the suffering that they were going through, but then for those around them to be mocking them. And, and, and in turn, due to their disobedience, it, it, it makes God look bad, not because of anything God has done, but because of what God's people have done. And so this is not a good situation. Verse 5. How long, Yahweh, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy keep burning like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that don't acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that don't call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob and devastated his homeland. How long, Yahweh, in the midst of this punishment, I think it's safe to call that, 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 uh, that the Israelites, the uh, tribe of Judah uh, is going through here, uh, the, the writer asked the question, how long, y'all, how much longer will this take place? How much long will you be, be angry with us? Will you be angry with us forever? Now, what does the writer desire here? He desires that God pour out his wrath on the nations. That is, God deliver your people and bring justice and, and punishment on those who are here destroying your city and destroying your people. And so the writer of this psalm is calling out, God, we need your help. This is a bad time and deliver us and destroy those who have attacked your people. Verse 8, do not hold past sins against us. Let your compassion come to us quickly for we have become weak. Now, this is a prayer of repentance, right? These are the same kind of prayers perhaps that we pray, okay? God's people acknowledge there are sins in their past and a lot of sins, not just for the generation living now, but in the generation's past. There are plenty of examples of God's people who are continually sinning and it's that sin that has gotten the tribe of Judah, the, the nation of Judah, uh, where they are now. Now, Originally, there were 12 tribes, but they got split up. Ten of them were Israel, the ten northern tribes, and the two southern tribes uh, kept the name of, of Judah, while the other tribes kept the name of Israel. And Israel fell sometime before Judah fell. But it was sometime later that Judah continued to live in that sin. Israel had already lived in that sin. They had fallen. God had allowed them to be overtaken. And now, here, Judah is still living in sin, and God is now allowing them to be overtaken. And so the prayer is, God, don't remember our sins of our past. Forgive the sins of our past. Let us feel your compassion, right? That's what we want. That's what we desire when we are in a season of sin. When we are in a season of, of, of kind of feeling the pain of the things that we are going through. What do we desire? That is the compassion of God, and we desire it quickly. And what does he say? We have become weak, right? That's what our sin does to us. Our sin makes us weak, but the strength of God will help us to overcome by forgiving us of our sin through Jesus Christ. It says in verse 9, God of our salvation, help us for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins because of your name. Why should the nations ask, where is their God? Before our eyes, let us let vengeance for the shed blood of your servants be known among the nations. Now, here we have this idea. God, God do this for you so that, so that you won't look bad. God, 
Even though we have sinned and we have done wrong, God, let, let this deliverance that we're going to receive and the punishment that's going to come on the enemies, let it be, God, for your glory. That is, why should the nation ask, where is God? Uh, show them, God, who you are. Show them where you are. We see this language, uh, we've seen it earlier on in the Psalms, that sometimes those around that may mock God's people in times of trouble, uh, when it looks like the enemy is getting the upper hand and God is not powerful enough or God has lost this question, oh, where is God? Is your God not good enough? Is your God not strong enough? Uh, we see a similar type of language in Exodus 32 when uh, God's people had been delivered out of Egypt and they proceed to make a golden calf to worship and God is really angry with them. And Moses, uh, he says, look, I'm ready to do away with them, Moses, and I want to make you a mighty nation. And, and Moses intercedes for him and he said, look, look, don't do this, God, because if you do this, the other nations will say, look, God, what kind of God is this? He brought his people out of Egypt just to destroy them in the wilderness. And that would make God look bad. That would make God not look like a good God. That would make God look weak. And the psalmist here says, God, these people are mocking you. They're asking where you are. So for your glory, dear Lord, not, not for us. We have done nothing but sin. But God, you are all-powerful, almighty. Show these people who you are for your glory, dear Lord. Act. Act in the midst of our, of our suffering, of our pain, of our destruction. Act, God, because you are God and you are good and you are to be glorified. So don't allow the other nations, God, to mock you because of our sin. But God, you show them the greatness of your love and your power. Verse 11, let the groans of the prisoners reach you according to your great power. Preserve those condemned to die. Pay back sevenfold to our neighbors the reproach they have hurled at you, Lord. Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will thank you forever. We will declare your praise to generation after generation. And so this is not so unsimilar to many of the psalms that we have looked at over the last couple of years to this point. And that is, sin is what has gotten God's people into this problem. And there is no question about it that they had sinned. But as we often see with these psalms is there is an acknowledgement of sin. Okay, God, we are getting what we deserve. But even though we deserve what we have gotten and are getting, we ask in the midst of this that you show mercy to us, that you give us compassion, God, so that you can be glorified through all this. God, so that we can be delivered, so that we can receive your salvation. God, so that the world can know and will know that you deliver those who are righteous and you punish those who are evil. And that's the common theme that we see throughout Scripture. God delivers the righteous and he punishes the evil. And sometimes God has to get the attention even of the righteous. But the righteous will always be delivered. God chastens those he loves, the Scripture said, or disciplines in some translations, those he loves. Okay, that's necessary even for God's people sometimes to be disciplined. But ultimately, those of God who are disciplined, the righteous will always be delivered. And the unrighteous will always suffer the wrath of God. And so even in our sin, sometimes we need to say, okay, God, I have sinned, I repent, I come to you, I need your compassion and your forgiveness. But God, don't let evil go unpunished. God, forgive my evil. 
God, help those who are able that they too would repent and come to you. But ultimately, when all is said and done, God will deliver the righteous. The question we must answer is, what about me? Am I one who is righteous? Now, how do we become righteous? Well, it's not by coming to church more or putting more money in the plate or saying the right things or doing good works. I mean, those are great things to do. As Christians, we should come to church and we should support God and we should uh, you know, do good things to people and be nice to people. But we are made righteous, not by those acts, but we are made righteous through Jesus Christ when we put our faith in him. And that is what makes us righteous. And when we are made righteous through Christ, we do good things because that's what God calls us to. We now have the Holy Spirit that leads us to do those types of things. And it's those who are righteous in Jesus Christ who will be delivered. And so we want to make sure that we are those who are righteous tonight. Not by our works, but by the works of Jesus Christ. And what's the response? Okay, God, we know we've sinned. We confessed our sin. We're asking for your compassion. We're asking you for to deal with those who are doing evil, God, so that the world will see you are great and you can be glorified. And what's the response of the psalmist here? Then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will thank you forever. Now, here's that beautiful language, that shepherd language and that sheep language. We saw that last week at the end of Psalm 78, it talked about the shepherd. We see this language here that talks about the sheep. And little passages like these are beautiful because that, that, that illustration of shepherd and sheep is woven throughout the Scripture all the way until it gets to Jesus Christ who is the good shepherd. And we are to be the sheep who hear the voice of the shepherd and follow Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. And here we see even here in Psalm 79 that the people of God are referred to as sheep. And what will the people of God, those who are righteous, those who are delivered, what will they do? We will thank you forever. Well, that's exactly what we are going to do. When we leave this world and we are with God for all of eternity, what will we be doing? We will be praising him. We will be thanking him. We will be glad to be in the joy of his presence forever and ever and ever. And what does he say? We will declare your praise to generation after generation. Okay, so there's coming a day when we will praise God, <coughs> God excuse me, forever and ever. But until that day comes, we have something to do. And what is that? To declare the praise of God from generation to generation. That we tell those that we encounter, hey, let me tell you about God. That we tell the next generation about Jesus Christ so that they can hear and they can tell the next generation about Jesus Christ. And obviously, it's working because it's been a long time since Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected, yet here we are 2,000 years later, and what are we doing? We're still reading the Word of God. We're still passing the truth of, of Jesus Christ from generation to generation. We're still talking about God's power and God's grace and God's compassion and God's glory from generation to generation. And should this world be around for 100, 200, 5 million more years, guess what? There's going to be somebody standing in a building, standing in a field, and they're going to be doing just what we're doing because the Word of God is not going to die. And so let us be those who seek God and continue to live out His Word and pass it from generation to generation until the day comes in which we will praise Him forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for these words, and I pray... God, that you would help us. Dear Lord, this is kind of a rough time as we study the history of, of Judah, dear Lord, and, and your people. And uh, they got themselves in a mess. 
And it's tough, dear Lord, because the truth of the matter is we are not really any better. We get ourselves in messes sometimes too. But God, even though we get ourselves in a lot of trouble, let us seek you in the midst of that trouble. Let us seek your compassion, dear Lord. We, God, we want to rightly serve you and represent you. We don't want to make you look bad to those around us, but God, when we sin, we do. But God, I pray that you would work in our life and in the lives of those around us so that you would be glorified, God, that you would continue to work in our world so that even when we fail, dear Lord, people will see your glory through your word and through your works and through your Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that you would help us to be those tonight who seek you, who seek to live righteous so that we would be delivered, dear Lord, so that we would sing your praises and thank you forevermore. But until that day comes in which we are with you forever, let us continue to work day to day down here to continue to do your work from generation to generation. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.